Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 1.25, The Pequot War. For the past several episodes, I have mentioned the Pequot tribe and the growing war class that have begun to dominate New England. This week, it is time for us to get down into the Pequot War and examine a conflict that would come to long define the relationship between the English in New England and the local Indian tribes. This war stands out as the first major engagement we see between the Native Americans and the English in New England. Well, there was that incident between the Plymouth Colony and the massacre at Wessagusset that remained an isolated incident and never developed into a full-fledged war like we're going to see break out in 1636. The end of the Pequot War will also mark a relatively long-term peace between the Native Americans and the English, which would last for nearly 40 years until the outbreak of King Philip's War. By and large, the relationship between the Native Americans and the English in Massachusetts was decent. Things weren't perfect. Recall Miles Standish and the Wessagusset incident. However, what came out of Wessagusset was widespread distrust of the pilgrims. Trade was affected and nobody really wanted anything to do with them. What it didn't do, however, was spur on any future reprisals or conflicts. Certainly nothing like the 1622 massacre in Jamestown had ever occurred following the Wessagusset incident. The local Indians never are really seen taking a very aggressive stance towards the settlers, and for the most part, a peaceful relationship formed in the first decade and a half throughout New England. Well, we can debate why the colonists in New England had so much better relationships with the Indians than down in Jamestown. Narrowing it down to a single thing is going to be impossible. However, you can point to the fact that in New England, there is not a person anywhere near as powerful as, say, Powhatan or Opashenkano. In the years before the Pilgrims, a devastating series of diseases had absolutely ravaged the New England tribes. These diseases simply decimated them. This would have been a huge deal for the English because the New England tribes were nowhere near prime fighting shape. There is no definitive answer of when the Pequot Nation moved into New England. However, there is some evidence pointing to the fact that they may have been relative newcomers to the region. We know, for example, that none of the other Indian nations in the region were terribly anxious to come to their aid during the war, and in fact, in many cases, banded together with the English to fight against the Pequot tribe. If you recall from last time, the river tribes in Connecticut had been anxious enough that they asked the English to come settle along the river, likely as a check against growing aggression from the Pequots. Tensions would, however, begin to rise in 1634 amongst the English when Captain Johnstone was murdered by the Pequots. The tribe claimed that this was done in retribution for a Dutch murder of one of their shaman. Stone was English, not Dutch. However, that might have been something lost upon the Pequots. This is an interesting position for the Pequots to have taken. In many ways, as we will see in a moment, there might have been some truth to the idea that the Pequots didn't want to face the fury of the English, and that this accidental killing story is just that, a story. This gets us to the idea that it is important here that we are careful not to make mistakes and acquit Stone and his actions. On the same mission where Stone was killed, he had taken two Pequots as hostages and forced them to act as navigators. It was the night that he took the hostages that a group of Pequots boarded Stone's ship, freed the hostages, and then killed Stone and some of his men. The Pequots did claim that they were also seeking retribution for the Dutch sinking a boat of theirs and killing one of their shaman. As far as the story that the Pequots didn't realize that Stone was English and not Dutch, it's largely a secondary point. Stone had taken Pequots hostage, and regardless of the motivation of the Pequots, be it a mission for rescue or retribution, Stone and his men were now dead. Either way, at this point we are now left with a dead colonist and an upset leadership group back in Massachusetts. 
even in the best of times, there was always a layer of nerves when it came to dealing with the Indians. Ever since the 1622 massacre in Jamestown, colonists remained acutely aware of the dangers of native populations. Way back in episode 18, when we were talking about Plymouth during the 1620s, I had talked about John Oldham. If you recall, John Oldham was seen as a rabble-rouser in Plymouth. Eventually, he was accused by William Bradford of working with the minister John Linford to undermine and destroy the Plymouth government. Oldham was literally chased out of Plymouth while people attempted to beat him with the butts of their muskets. I had promised that in that episode, Oldham would make one more appearance in this podcast just to quickly die. If you have been sitting around for the past six episodes wondering when I was going to get back to John Oldham and his death, well, the time is now upon us. Following being chased from Plymouth, Oldham had managed to become a respected member in the Bay Colony and seems to have done rather well for himself, having established himself as a well-respected trader. The English were already upset that the Pequots had failed to turn over two of Stone's murderers. Now, this goes along with additional tensions that had really formed in the past few years as a result of the European expansion into the Mystic River Valley of the southeastern portion of Connecticut. With the Pequots failing to turn over Captain Stone's murderers, things were quickly spiraling out of control. A fever pitch was reached in May of 1636. On May 20th, a trader named John Gallup spotted Oldham's boat, which was being swarmed with Indians. Oldham had been traveling on a trading mission with the Narragansett when his boat was attacked. According to the account later from Gallup, he found Oldham's very recently killed body. Gallup described a grisly scene. Not only was Oldham dead, but the evidence was that the Indians had attempted to cut off his limbs. Here is where everybody comes to a crossroads. On May 20th, 1636, the day that Oldham was killed, war with the Pequots was looking increasingly likely. A clue that war was imminent comes from Lieutenant Lyon Gardner. Gardner was the first commander of Fort Saybrook. Fort Saybrook is located along the southern coast of Connecticut. Gardner, earlier in 1636, had begged the Bay Colony to exercise leniency and not go out and do something to provoke war with the Pequots at least until he could finish his fortification, as he felt that his location at the furthest southern point of the Connecticut River would make him a prime target for fighting, which ultimately he would be correct about. These warnings were issued before the Oldham killing. This means that by the time John Oldham was killed, war was already looking like a likely outcome. The problem, however, is that there is very little evidence to show that Oldham had been killed by the Pequot tribe. Even at the time, there were a lot of people who felt that the evidence implicating the Pequots in the murder was weak at best. Decisions, therefore, had to be made on if they were going to place the blame on the Pequots and use it as a justification for what already seemed like an inevitable war. The evidence actually suggests that the murder was carried out by the Narragansetts. Informants among the tribe point to the Narragansetts as being the culprits, and it does seem that a year or so after the killing, a minor chief was put to death by the greater Narragansett tribe for being the leader in the killing of Oldham. The problem here is that despite the truth being that the Pequots probably had nothing at all to do with the death of Oldham, the English were angry and they wanted revenge. The Pequots were already causing enough problems for the English, and right or wrong, the English now had their justification for war. The question now becomes, why did the English come looking for a fight? If, as many sources suggest, the cause of the Pequot War was largely pretextual, why did the English want to pick the fight in the first place? To answer this, the first question is to figure out why Oldham found himself in a position like this. During the 1630s, a bitter rivalry emerged between the Narragansetts and the Pequots. 
As a major trader, both sides would have coveted working with Oldham and, more importantly, wanted to assure that Oldham didn't switch sides and help the enemy. If the information we have is correct, and it was actually a rogue Narragansett who killed Oldham, who was at the time trading with them, it is possible that the Narragansetts believed that Oldham had or was planning to switch side to the Pequots. Regardless, it is important to remember that for the Narragansetts, their biggest rival was the Pequots. Getting the English to ally with them during the war was a boon that could potentially pay huge dividends in the future. They could, effectively, eliminate one of their hated rivals. The Narragansetts were also working with a pretty good amount of cover here. It was hard for the colonial leadership to believe that the Narragansetts would set out on some grand conspiracy to kill one of their most valued trading partners. Oldham was worth a lot to the Narragansetts economically. On the surface, at least, killing him made little sense. They would eliminate a close trading partner while at the same time bringing the bank colony anger to their doorstep. The biggest question, therefore, is how does all of this ultimately fall upon the shoulders of the Pequots? Well, for one thing, the English disliked the Pequots more than they disliked the Narragansett. For the English, a war would provide them with the opportunity to further cement their place in New England, a chance to show the natives the might of European-style warfare. Regardless of who they fought, the message wouldn't be lost on anybody. The English lacked the manpower for a two-front war against both the Pequots and the Narragansetts. They were going to have to pick one. In 1636, the Narragansetts had more allies and would have been a more difficult fight. The Pequots, further, were an enemy that had more value in terms of the villages and wealth that they possessed. The Pequots were in a more strategic location for the English as well. Defeating the Pequots would put the English in a position to better check the growth of the Dutch in New England. Specifically, the English saw the need to control the increasingly valuable mouth of the Connecticut River. So in one corner, you have a harder fight with less sizable wealth available and not sitting in a strategic position that the English cared about nearly as much. In the other corner, you had a tribe that was universally hated by the other tribes in New England. They had more wealth to capture and they held important strategic points for the English to check Dutch expansion. Now, of course, it's not going to be as cut and dry as the English settlers just declaring war. Instead, the Massachusetts Bay Colony formed the Standing Council, which was responsible for all military matters. Under the leadership of John Winthrop Jr., the son of John Winthrop, an ultimatum was given to the Pequots. The Pequots had to, predictably, hand over the killers of Captain Stone. At the same time, there was a demand for a greater amount of tribute to be paid. This generally reflected a 1634 treaty, which was put into place after the killing of Captain Stone except this time there was more tribute involved. The Pequots predictably ignored these demands, and one month after the ultimatum was issued, the opening salvos of the Pequot War were fired. Fighting began on August 25, 1636, under the command of John Endicott. The first strike was to be won against Block Island, near where Oldham had been killed. Block Island is located off the eastern shore of Long Island, roughly sitting a straight line away between the point of Montauk and Martha's Vineyard. The second in command was Captain John Underhill, who was kind enough to leave behind a history of his involvement. Underhill makes clear that the strike on Block Island was to seek retribution for Oldham. The first strike involved some 90 Englishmen who struck the island with vengeance. Instructed to kill all native males, this plays out like a scorched earth campaign. The English only actually managed to kill around a dozen men, but they were able to burn villages and create general havoc. 
most of the Indians had fled into the woods rather than trying to engage with the English. The Pequots, having little interest in any direct engagement with the English, managed to survive in greater numbers, early on at least. However, this does come at an absolutely terrible cost to them. The English were left essentially unopposed to burn and destroy villages, food supplies, and everything they found. Now, a few points that I want to make about the scale of fighting. While it may be tempting to envision a European war with large armies, that would be a very incorrect vision. Like I said it a moment ago, according to Underhill, only about 90 men landed on Block Island. As of this point, there was not a massive military apparatus in North America, and even back in Europe during this time, this is not the era of huge pitched conflicts. You're not, for example, going to see the numbers that you'd see, say, during the Napoleonic Wars or during World War I or II back during the 1600s. In North America specifically, the population could not support a large army, either in the manpower to fight or the power to supply the men doing the fighting. This means that engagements are going to be small bands of men and not anything close to resembling a large professional army. It is also interesting that we get a clue from Underhill that the Pequots really were not expecting this war at all. Upon first encounter, the Pequots acted as though the English were there on a trade mission. Underhill said that they, the English, continued on with this belief until they got themselves into an advantageous position where they could attack. However, even once the Pequots realized what was going on and that war had come, the English continued to have a major advantage in the form of their allies. The Narragansetts were more than happy to join the English cause and fight alongside them. The Narragansett guides had a vastly superior working knowledge of the Pequots' locations in the woods and provided the English with a huge advantage. Having the Narragansetts as an ally meant that the Pequots had nowhere that they could hide from the English advances. The Pequots were not wanting to face off directly against the English and turned to a strategy of harassment. Now, this isn't a terrible plan for the Pequots. Knowing that they couldn't stand directly against the English forces, regardless of how small they were, they used a series of hit-and-run style attacks to harass the English. Now, if you'll recall from a moment ago, I had talked about Lion Garner wanting to wait until he had fortified his Fort Saybrook. This wasn't without merit, as he quickly found himself being at the brunt of the attacks. As would be a problem throughout all of Connecticut, issues quickly arose from the rapid growth that the region had seen. Because there had been a rush of people coming to form new settlements, everybody had inadvertently spread out. And on the one hand, this makes sense. You don't want to start to grow a community that is just going to crash into another one. The issue, however, is that much like with what we saw back in 1622 Virginia, all of these new communities are spread out, which makes defense a much more difficult task. For the Pequots, it made their lives that much easier. The Pequots would strike a major blow in April of 1637 at Wethersfield. Today a suburb of Hartford, Wethersfield lays just to the south of modern-day Hartford. Wethersfield had been the site of colonists killing a Pequot shaman named Sawkeeg, despite an earlier agreement to allow him to live on his own lands. This made Wethersfield a target of interest for the Pequots. On April 23rd, the Pequots attacked. Moving first at the men working in the fields, they would proceed to move through the town killing livestock, destroying food supplies, and burning homes. At the end of the day, nine colonists now lay dead, six men and three women. Two young girls were kidnapped and taken as hostages. Days later, this same group of Indians sailed right past Gardner, down in Saybrook, openly mocking the English. The clothes of the dead had been turned into the sails of their boats. 
Gunner did manage to get a little damage done by firing a cannon at them, however, it was relatively limited. And before we move on, a quick side note about those two girls, they would ultimately be saved by the Dutch. The attack on Weathersfield was shocking to everybody involved. Not only the death toll, but the brazen nature of the attack surprised the English in Connecticut. Recognizing that things were starting to get away from them, it was decided that they needed to respond and quickly. Knowing that a counterstrike was now necessary, they proceeded to raise 90 men, 42 from Hartford, 30 from Windsor, and 18 from Wethersfield to carry out the attack. Commanded by John Mason and Underhill, the group was led by a Narragansett scout to a settlement in the Mystic River Valley. The Narragansetts had told the English of a large fortification near the Mystic River. The village was home to somewhere between 400 and 700 Pequot men, women, and children. Arriving in the pre-dawn hours of May 26, the English moved quietly and surrounded the village. The first strike came when the English stormed a smaller fort. After the Pequots began frantically fighting back, the English responded by setting fire to that fort. Fire quickly engulfed the village, leaving those inside with one of two options. They could either burn to death inside, or face the English and run from the flames. What ensued was nothing short of a vengeance-filled slaughter. Those fleeing from the village were met by English guns and swords. This instantly turned into indiscriminate killing. It wasn't just the men that were dying, it was everybody. Men, women, children. Everybody running out of the village to flee the fire was fair game. Those that managed to survive the fire and then get past the English lines were hunted down and killed in the surrounding swamplands, oftentimes by the local river tribes that had wanted to remove the Pequot threat from their own lives in the first place. The slaughter was shocking for just about everybody involved. The Indian guys were horrified at the extent of the English, not having expected the women and children to be fair game. When John Underhill himself, one of the leaders of this massacre, wrote his history of the event, he spent large amounts of that history trying to defend the actions of the English in the Mystic River area. Underhill comes right out and tells the reader that he wants to give them a better version of himself than is being reported, wrongfully of course, in other accounts. In addition to that, Underhill goes on for pages talking about how he fought a good Christian fight. Indeed, in nearly every personal history that was written about this fight, there is an attempt to make the reader understand the justifications for what occurred in the Mystic River Valley. From Underhill trying to paint the battle in a light that shows it was consistent with Christian beliefs, to Philip Vincent explaining that if you don't completely vanquish an enemy, you give them a chance to come back and fight another day, to John Mason, who comes away with a mixture of throwing Underhill under the bus and saying that hours before, those same Indians were planning how to bring ruin and destruction to the English. The scope of the massacre was staggering. According to John Mason, six to seven hundred Indians lay dead. Seven were captured, and seven escaped. For the English, two lay dead, and some twenty others were injured. For all intents and purposes, the Pequot War ended right there along the banks of the Mystic River. While an actual peace agreement was months away, resistance by the Pequots was at a complete end. The English continued in their effort, killing and capturing most of the Pequots that they could find. By the end of the war, the Pequots saw at least 1,500 dead. Those that survived became subjects to other tribes. The Pequot nation that had existed previously was now gone. 
we are going to finish today by looking at the long-term consequences and conclusions from the Pequot War. The legacy of the Pequot War starts and ends with the massacre at Mystic River. There was a treaty, the Treaty of Hartford, which was signed on September 21st, 1638. However, treaty is a rather generous term for what it actually was. The Pequot Nation had been destroyed. The treaty was simply a method whereby the colonists decided what to do with the remnants. There was a mixture of rolling the survivors into the jurisdiction and control of other tribes or sending them off into slavery. There was not a Pequot nation left to come to an agreement with. Rather, by this time, it's just tying off the loose ends. Opinions of the Pequot War ranged. The brutality seen at Mystic River was stunning and left deep impressions on those who were there. A few minutes ago, I mentioned that reading the histories of those events, there is largely an exercise in watching people attempt to justify their actions, or at a minimum point blame away from themselves. William Bradford, in Of Plymouth Plantation, wrote about how difficult it was to see the people burning to death. However, that this was all part of God's doing, and he was thankful for him giving the English a speedy victory. Bradford would also mention that the Narragansetts, who were there all along, stood back, and other than participating in some trash talk, seemed less enthusiastic at the idea of actually participating. Several of the accounts come back to the idea that this is simply God's will. It's not surprising that this would prove to be a major source of trying to come to grips over what had happened. This is Puritan New England. Literally everything is viewed through the lens of religion. This attempt to justify the events over the Mystic River also stemmed from pressures that came from England over the ordeal. The English back in England were horrified at the excesses of the massacre. Responding to the negative press by seeking a justification rooted in Christianity made sense and was ultimately the path of least resistance. However, I would point out, and I'm looking at you, John Underhill, that if you have to specifically state that the people should abstain from judging your actions too harshly, those underlying actions are very likely going to be problematic to begin with. Beyond the end of the Pequot Nation, as well as the ethical questions surrounding the events at Mystic River, long-term effects were also set in motion. Now bound together by their shared experience of fighting the Pequots, the Connecticut colonists had also eliminated one of the biggest checks on their expansion throughout the Connecticut River Valley. With a newfound sense of independence, in 1639, the Connecticut colonists would break from Massachusetts and become their own separate political entity. This changing political dynamic also is going to lead to the creation of the New England Confederation in 1643. This confederation was made up of Massachusetts, Plymouth, New Haven, and Connecticut. This was a mutual defense agreement that would prove to be a link between the New England colonies, except Rhode Island because everybody thought Roger Williams was a nut. By the decades in, Connecticut had grown to become the second largest colony in New England. With the Great Migration ending, Connecticut was second to only Massachusetts and New England, having surpassed Rhode Island and Plymouth. By eliminating the Pequots, there really was no check on expansion of the English throughout Connecticut. The English had likewise now formed an important check on the Dutch West India Company, and had done a good job at successfully blocking Dutch interference and settlement into New England. This is yet another factor in why Connecticut would be able to so rapidly flourish in the later half of the 1630s. Also keep in mind how this would change the colonial experience throughout New England. What had just been two decades before nothing but endless hostile wilderness for the English had become a sizable zone of the English world. No longer was this endless frontier, rather there were English towns dotting the landscape. 
the Indian threat had, for the moment, been largely pacified. The English were free to expand and thrive. Consider as well the view of this all from the Narragansetts, now the largest tribe in New England. Sure, yes, they were on the winning side of the Pequot War. Yes, they had managed to eliminate their primary source of competition. On paper, the world must have looked a whole lot brighter for the Narragansetts right after the end of the war. And despite the fact that, so far as I can tell, we don't have any source talking about their thoughts regarding the Mystic River Massacre, one has to think that they also walked away from the war with a very strong message about the future of their security. They had just borne witness to what the English could do, to the devastation that they could unleash. At a minimum, the Narragansetts must have been cognizant of their increasingly precarious place in the world. And, spoiler alert, it would be a precarious position. A generation later, when King Philip's War breaks out, the Narragansetts would find themselves being on the other side of a war with the English. This does, however, highlight another outcome of the Pequot War, that from 1638 until 1675, there was peace between the English and the Indians in New England. Modern historians tend to look towards the events of the Pequot War with an increasingly critical eye. As we have discussed today, the justifications for the war in the first place were highly questionable. In many ways, the truth seems more to suggest that the Pequots were simply in the way and the English were itching for a reason to engage them. The action during the war also brings up a host of ethical questions that even today seem difficult to grapple with. While the English were undoubtedly pleased to have removed the Pequot nation, it is clear that even in the 1630s, there was an uncomfortable feeling that emanated out of the events at Mystic River. Despite the English having to deal with their ethics and their behavior during the war, the overall outcome of that war would prove greatly beneficial to the English. With Connecticut now allowed to thrive, the English would further cement their New England holdings. As a closing remark for today, instead of leaving you all with nothing but the legacy of a slaughter to think about for the next two weeks, I thought I would provide you with an interesting fact and potentially a future final Jeopardy question. Remember our friend Lion Gardner from earlier today? Well, he is going to go on to settle Gardner's Island off the tip of Long Island. And here is the fun fact today, Gardner's Island still is among the largest privately owned islands in the United States. And who owns the island, you ask? Well, that would be the Gardner family. That's right. After all of these years, the island is still being held by a descendant of Lion Gardner. I'll give you one more fun little fact today to go off with. It seems like a pretty popular bit of trivia that President John Tyler still has living grandchildren, at least as of the publication of this episode in 2019. Here is, however, something that I bet you did not know. Those grandchildren? Well, they are also related to Lion Gardner. John Tyler's son, who would go on to have these children who are still living today, was in fact named Lion Gardner Tyler. So there you go, that is some pretty good trivia for you. Next time, we are going to take time to look at the role of religion in New England. We have touched on this previously, however, sharp divisions in religion are going to form a major part of our story moving forward. It is, after all, on the basis of religion that so many of the political decisions that we will be talking about shortly will originate. As always, I appreciate you guys tuning in this week, and I will be back in two weeks' time to talk about the religious situation in New England.